Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is David Lipsky. He has a new book, The Parrot and the Igloo. This is his second time on the podcast. There were a lot of fireworks last time. Uh, and uh, it was super fun and I got a ton of great feedback. And I remember last time sort of challenging you to live up to your potential because I had, I had so loved your other books. You know, there aren't that many people where I've read all their books and I think I've read all your books. And um, I've had the West Point book on my bookshelf since it came out. And I, I, I was trying to remember, man, when, do, when we met first, the first time we met and had lunch together, was it right after the West Point yeah, book? Before like, the Wallace book, Yeah, right? it was probably like a well, I think, year, pull back. sorry. Probably like a year or two after the West Point book came out. But that was the yeah. subject we were talking yeah, about, yeah, yeah. right? Well, Our we were, yeah. just, that, that, that was our jumping off point. Then we talked yeah. about um, every, everything yeah. else. And you know how much I loved uh, the, the Wallace book. Because, you know, David, David, I think, wrote the best book about West Point. Uh, or a book about West Point that is the most, that gives you the clearest sense of, of what it was like to be at West Point. When the world was different, but still what it was like to be yeah. at West Point. When those people were facing slightly different issues, but still uh, there. And then wrote the memoir about uh, his couple of days with David Foster Wallace that became the movie. Say the title right. End of the tour. Right, that's the movie, but the book yeah. is, oh, of, although, course, of course, you end up becoming, you end yourself. Up becoming yeah. yourself. But his new book, The Parrot and the Igloo. So let me, so, so Brian, when you came, one reason I was so eager to, A, that was, uh, the Wallace book is about a great conversation, but like, I think, I think you and I only talked for like two and a half hours or hour and 50 minutes, but that was a, that was the best conversation I had that year. So when you and I have been scheduling this, I keep saying to your assistants, I was like, he could, he could have me come down at one in the morning. I would come down. No, you said that to me. Pizza. I wrote you myself. Yeah, that was when I wrote, I wrote you myself. Too. Yeah, but I, wrote I wrote you to say, because yeah. yeah, man. Um, but I wanted to quote, I wanted to quote Jesse Smollett. He was, I remember after the thing with Subway, he was explaining to a newscaster why he thought he'd be, he was going to be beaten up. And he said, because I go at 45 hard. And you came at me hard about whether I was writing stuff that was as talented as I could be. And so when, the, when I was working on the book, I was like, I'm going to get this to Brian. And we're going to see what he's going to, and I'm going to see what he's going to say. And, right? and then when we would have meetings, the marketing and publicity people, they'd be talking about other things. I'd be sort of tuning out and I'd say, just get it to compliment. And it's Hilarious. like, did you say it to compliment? Because I wanted to, because we had, that was like, like a, a third of the time was about whether, so that was my answer was the book. Well, if I in some way was in your head <laughs> a slight bit when you were writing the book, I am so happy because man, it's funny the way these conversations happen. And I wish there were a word for the kind of relationship you and I have, because we're, we're not friends by any traditional sense because we don't hang out, but we're like friends because yeah. we're, we're in each other's head. And I treated that conversation with you as the way I would treat a conversation with David Levine. I was treating that conversation with you. In my mind, I was talking to someone who had the potential, who was supposed to write one of the great American books Ooh. and who had run from the challenge uh and understandably and under uh, you know it's funny there's an allusion to it in this book too there's an allusion to somebody coming up against the thing and and deciding and, yeah. and uh and although this isn't a number it was specifically about and then we're going to move forward what that was specifically about was 
this notion, and I've talked to Seth Godin about this a ton, you know, this notion of making peace with the idea that there is a Bob Dylan, but you can still write songs. There is a David Mamet, the guy before the guy now. There is a David Mamet, but you can still write screenplays. And you don't have to be David Mamet. You don't have to be Bob Dylan. Uh, and so I, can, I, I understood why spending those days with somebody like that and being in that situation might freeze somebody. But on the other hand, dude, you have delivered something in this book. And I, I've been thinking a lot about how to have this conversation because if I were a listener, I might stop listening if I immediately heard the subject matter. And I don't really know how to talk about the subject matter without saying these words that you explain why in the book are words that, that people have taken great efforts to design entire schemes like a football coach would <laughs> to make these words not take hold either to act like Ipecac and get you to vomit or to act like a somnolent and put you to sleep. And um, <laughs> in fact, I, I called a really smart friend of mine who's a libertarian, who's, who's politics. Someone I bounce when I think I'm going down uh, my tribe's rabbit hole, hmm. I sometimes call this friend and say, okay, how do your people talk about this? And the first thing he said about this subject, and this book does deal with climate, uh, the first thing he said was, well, look, I mean, I, I'm no expert, I'm not focus on this, but, which immediately is like, they've succeeded if he's not yeah. focusing on it. But secondly, he goes, but you know, I mean, if uh, China and India and all these other countries won't, change. I mean, our change is not going to accomplish anything. And I said, Frank, let's put those words yeah. in that, your mouth. Man. That's the emotional home run. In I said, Frank, Frank let's yeah. put those words in your mouth. It's so good. And um, I disagree with you about him being brilliant, by the way, having spent some time with the man. And uh, but I do think he's come up with some ideas that really landed. But here's where I want to start. So we're not going to sit here and talk about climate right now. We are going to get there. I also want to tell you, if you're listening to this, I don't care if this podcast goes long because David Lipsky has written Darren Strauss, who has been on the podcast and who we know both know good friend of yeah. uh, David said, this is the best nonfiction book I've read in decades and the best book of its kind I've ever read. And let me say, this is the, this is my words. This is the best nonfiction book I've read in a decade for sure. This is a joyful, joyful misery. <laughs> David, you've really, you really knocked it out of the park, man. What were your ambitions as a, as a writer with this book? We're gonna talk about your ambitions uh, as a citizen in a second, but what were your ambitions as a writer? Uh, well, since you told me that I wasn't working to potential, uh, I thought I should work to potential. Um, but I thought of this great thing that, uh, that Melville said, I think it's actually in Moby Dick, and he said that uh, to have a big book, you have to have a big subject. Give me a condor quill for a pen and Vesuvius for an inkwell. And I just thought that it was uh, a great story. And um, do, you know, do you know Elizabeth Hardwick? She was Lowell's very long-suffering wife. I think uh, I don't know her work. Oh, she's brilliant. She's a great essayist. She I don't know her great, work. Fuck, um, she is an effing brilliant essayist. You can say fucking brilliant yeah. on the Okay, podcast. she's fucking brilliant. She was a... Uh, she was married to Robert Lowell, and so she, she I know learned Lowell's about work. perseverance. Yeah. yeah, I think she's a better writer than Lowell. She's great. Anyway, she said that there are only uh, two good reasons to write. They are revenge and money, right? 
Um, and one of the reasons I wrote the book was just when I, some of the stuff in the book that I hope was very irritating to you too. When I read that, I got angry, basically. But then you and I, before we turned the mics on, we were talking about craft, how to do our jobs, basically. And just now, while you were talking, and I was very flattered by what you were saying, I looked over and I saw all your Stephen King books. And it's like, what a brilliant craft guy he is, right? Like, he has an idea, and then his question is, what's the best way to tell the story? And so I knew this is a great story, because it's happening to everybody, and I saw who some of the characters were. And then the question that I had was, okay, you've always thought you were a good writer, right? Um, one of the things that Wallace says towards the end of, uh, of the book uh, that you were talking about before, and it's a scene that the movie gets really great. He said, yeah, I'm like you. Uh, I, want, I want as many people as there are to see my stuff because I think I'm good. And I thought I was good, and I thought that this was a story that could be great if I could rise to the occasion and figure a way to tell it where you would read it for fun. So I was trying to make this book like the books that you and I read for fun, make it fun the way King is. Yeah, the, the, you know, to me, like, um, in a way, Michael Lewis is the gold standard of being able to entertain you while telling you the truth in a way that is unpleasant about how America works or parts of America works. He's very, you know, he has a smoothness to him that, uh, and kind of an unruffled quality. Yeah. You're not unruffled and the book is not unruffled. But here's the thing, when, when one reads the, this, this kind of thing, normally the outrage has a deadening effect. The book's very funny too, but how did you as a craftsperson decide, okay, uh, because Lewis is, is, is writing, I'm very interested to see what the Bitcoin SBF book is going to be, because that has a very different kind of effect on regular people, I think, than um, some of his other, other books like the damage is, is sort of, it's theoretical in certain ways. Yeah, it's a war that the reader isn't fighting. The, uh, the, but this is a war where the readers is. have casualties. Uh, yeah. and, and, and so, but, but you don't bludgeon us. And so I wonder how you destroy us, but you don't bludgeon us. And I wonder how you thought about that because it's not a harangue. It's, like I said, it's a joyful misery. So how did you think about it? Yeah, I would take the misery part out. Like I, I wanted it, uh, I don't know, I you know I love, Wallace is writing. I love Laurie Moore. I love Pauline Kael. Do you ever read Kael just for fun? I've read all okay, of yeah. it many times. Yeah. I mean, like many times. Yeah. yeah. I wanted it. Uh, one of the things I loved about your email, you were talking about how the book is written, like sentence by sentence. I just wanted it to be a book you'd read for fun. I wanted it to be. So, so like uh, I woke up really stupid this morning because uh, I, had a, I had an event that I was doing Yesterday, and there's an event I'm doing tomorrow, which is good because your book's out and you, A, there's the veneer of it's a public service, and then B, it's a personal service. You've put the thing in, you want people to love it, right? Yes. Uh, so I didn't get a lot of sleep, and then I woke up. So I, I lied to your assistants and said that I had a Zoom meeting. And it was it's like one of those I Love Lucy lies. The Zoom meeting is tomorrow, but you and I were supposed to be doing this two hours ago, but I was just too wrecked, basically. So I said, I have a Zoom meeting. Can we meet later? And then uh, I was still too stupid to present. And I remembered what I told my students. I teach, uh, I teach in the graduate program at NYU. And I showed them a copy of a Martin Amos book that I have, his collection of essays. Do you ever read it? War Against Cliché? 
And I showed them that my my copy of it like had the cover taped back on and shit like that. And it was actually sort of the, the spine was broken in the middle, like the way Bane breaks Batman's spine in the in the comics. And I said that what I'd use the book for is that when I was on book tour, um, whatever I was doing when I was in Denver or you're in Seattle and you're stupid, right? And you're watching a shitty room service. You're watching rather shitty room service television. One of the weird things about traveling now is that you have less good TV when you're in your hotel. That used to be the great thing when you would travel before, right? The last 10 years, it's always like, you know, I can make do. This is like well, being in the it's wilderness. On your, but it's on your case. It's on your computer anyway. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's just not yeah. different. No, it's yeah. not strange anymore. Yeah, exactly. But you remember, it was you like, have, well, of course. Um, yeah. But, uh, but then I would wake up really stupid. And what I found with Amos was however dumb I woke up, if I read uh, Amos for 40 minutes, my brain was back on. And so before I came in today, I thought, okay, do what you tell the students. So I read 40 Minutes of Amos. I was reading his great piece about the poet Philip Larkin. Uh, and then I was smart again. And I was, I was trying to write a book like that, where it's just forgetting what the topic is, forgetting how exciting the story is. And so if this, in the places where the book isn't thrilling, it would be because I wasn't at my best for those weeks or months. But the main thing I wanted the book to be was what I think books are for people like us who were working in words professionally, or people who want to be working in words professionally, or people who just want to be smarter. Yeah. Or who want to be uh, lifted up and elevated yeah, exactly. by work. You don't have to want to be a writer yeah. to be engaging in, in a way, right? Um, what did Salinger say? Like to the amateur reader, he dedicates this book to the amateur uh, reader. Yeah, I'm surprised you would know that. The same yeah. way, uh, uh, you know, like a cool um, line yeah. of being a luncheon companion yeah, presents a cool line. The way a, a, a kid presents, um, my son Matthew, a five-year-old yeah, presents Matthew. a Matthew. My present, Matthew yeah. Uh, yeah, my son yeah. Matthew gives a, same a cool line yeah. of being to, to a luncheon yeah. companion. Yeah. yeah, that's great, exactly. Yeah, yeah. so that's, I mean, you know, that's, that's not, to, to the to professional. Yeah. So yeah, you, you want it to, to and be. And also one thing I would add about that, you over talked me before we got yeah, on. Go. So I felt it was did you um have you seen The Diplomat, by the way, that show on uh on Netflix? One the first episode, I think okay. she's terrific, but yeah. I didn't I didn't press on. The yet. dialogue gets great in that show, and there's a great thing about over talking in the last episode that for anyone who's watched it is impossible to forget. And when you say it, uh, please email me because like it's a brilliant line that you'll remember uh, forever. Um, I kind of wanted this book to have things like that for the reader. There'd just be jokes that they would remember and they wouldn't remember they were in this book. And I also wanted it to be the kind of book where you wake up somewhere or you have to write uh, emails or texts. Like one of the weird things about the jump forward in technology, there are tremendous jumps forward in the last 23 years, right? Or that they bring, they've brought us all back two centuries and everybody that we know now lives in an epistolary novel. Like, isn't that shocking? Yeah, and, and, and better epistolary uh, novels than like Humphrey Clinker or something <laughs> like that, you know, which was the first one yeah. that uh, I, I read and uh, a teacher named Roger Erickson. I, I, I wonder if, it's, if I went back, I've tried actually, and no, still not good. But yes, it's true, we are all writers now. Exactly. And so I wanted to write a book. Epistolary novel is a novel of letter, in letters, yeah. just so, for the yeah. people like, listening. If, yeah. uh, if it was the 1990s, the 80s, you had no idea if your friends had a good pro style. I mean, you would know from David because that's your job, but you would never know. Now I know the rhythm and the novelty with which my friends think, right? And so I know that books are for that. Books are like vitamin pills for that. Um, and I wanted, since that's how I've always used books, I wanted to write foremost i wanted to write a book that would do that service for the reader because that's the service books provide for me yeah I, i've been in a great run of reading lately and i will say there's a book that's so different from this but the that is actually 
just another, and I'm just going to say it because he, he was on the podcast a couple of years ago, but um, Michael Bamberger wrote a book about, about golf that recently that is, it, it, all these things you're saying just makes me say it. I had wanted to mention it. People should go and check it out. I just forget the title of it now, but it's it's about four non-professionals and that's a great uh, idea. And it's it's just about why golf matters, kind of. But it's about why being a human matters. And this book is, I've undersold. I'm just going to say a couple of things. And it's funny, you know, partially because what was so gratifying to me reading this book, like you, you know, it's it's fun to be right about something. And and uh, <laughs> I was right about what you had in you. And um, but I will say, like the way you describe people, as as clear and inventive and fun as Wallace at a state fair or Wallace on uh, a cruise ship, a, a cruise ship. Yeah. and it's something I've I've really missed in the world. And and, and if you're listening to this, you gotta like like you'll meet in in this book heroes and villains, and and David will just. I'm going to do the thing, the textual thing. I mean, you'll be happy to see. Like, just yeah, no, I was thrilled, the, thrilled the, the to see that. Um, that, but, that. That's a book that's been loved. That, yeah, that, no, this know, is a yeah, truly, yeah. like, yeah, no, dude. Like, he'll describe somebody and he'll say, um, you made a decision to both do a physical description and then an inner life description within your physical description almost every time. Was that conscious choice? Tell me what you mean. Here's what I mean. He had the look of a TV weatherman, owl glasses, weedy yeah, brows, right. friendly and concerned. A man who would use complicated phrases, then take, take the trouble the to, to explain. explain. Yeah, yeah. Right. In describing one person. And okay, if that's like your hero of the book, that is one thing. But even in, there are asides throughout the book. We meet chemical giant DuPont. The full name is like a sweeping courtier bow. <laughs> E.I. DuPont de Nemours. <laughs> I'm so pleased you like that. And joke. there are these little, um, yeah. there are these little treats for kind of whatever you happen to bring to the book, you know. And I'm gonna read a few of them as we go because I'm so, you know, if I'm gonna do one more right now because this, I just love this so much. Okay, and because I hope as a as a re, as a listener, you will understand that although this is a book that deals with climate, and we're gonna have to talk about that. I just want you to understand how much fun it is to read. He's describing someone who is, does become one of the heroes of, of the book. And he says, a journalist once described uh, Hanson as looking yeah. in his office, clothes, khakis and sweaters like a PTA dad, but that's slightly wrong. He has the catcher's mitt face of a farmer. Someone you might see giving reluctant directions to a sport car at the side of a long flat highway or perched in the metal saddle of a tractor, shaking his head over a bum crop. <laughs> so how did you come to those descriptions? Talk about the process as though we were all writing students. Talk about the, was it um, upon interviewing those people, upon first seeing them, upon reflecting, how many of those did you rewrite? What was the choice to do it? Because you don't do it once, you do it 50 times. So. Talk all about that, please. Sure, but then I'll tell you something funny, which will distract you before I answer your question. I should get a, I should get a pen and paper, like uh -huh. uh, like people when they're uh, when they're doing a, a presidential I debate, have. so they can write down. I have, the, and I'll the, bring the, to you. Yeah. Um, so when you were saying it's a little bit like David stuff, one thing that uh, I'm honor bound to say is that the first half of the book was edited by David's mom. Wow. Really? Yeah. She, yeah, she was, and uh, and I could see one of the 
Is she, you know, that's, got, where, where does she work? Um, she she taught uh, she taught grammar and and uh, and composition writing at a school called uh, at a Parkland at a college called Parkland. I mean, in, she was the first Illinois. snoot. Clearly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and she she passed a couple of years back, but she you know she did a great line edit on the first the first half of the book, and that was that was the only part of the book that was written at the time that she was. Uh, editing basically uh, and it was interesting because she is so much the whole family has some of the same wit that uh, that David has they yeah. all speak in a way that is would be very recognizable to people who love David's work and it was just a treat to have her crisping up let's say some of those phrases and so like the one that you mentioned about Hanson was a little bit longer and she made that slightly shorter um, but the basic answer so to me, I was a. I was very proud that she did that, and b. Every time people say how fast the book moves, I'm always just proud for Sally because uh, I heard from people in her family that she was just pleased to be showing her skills, basically to be using those skills. It was really interesting. Like she, um, well, as you said, that was good to, and I, I'm glad you said it. And yes, it distracted me for a moment. Yeah, but I now it get yeah. to your okay. So, after you were talking yeah. to our class writers about this, how talk about the process of crafting these descriptions. Like I'm saying, doing an exter external sure. thing and and then getting into the interiority. How you use them, what the rewriting process was, when you came up with them, when you came up with that as a trope. Because it's quite different than what you did in the West Point book. Let me ask you a question about that, though. As a side note, if you're talking to someone, and feel free to uh, to cancel this because this is a word that a lot of people use. But when people say the word trope, which they weren't saying as much about five to seven years ago, do you bristle a little bit? Because that's the kind of thing that both Amos and Wallace would refer to as like a herd word or a vogue word. Herd, H-E-R-D. Do you know what I mean? Because like trope is a big trope is like a linguistically it's like an infestation it's come over here in a cloud it's been chewing on our would you uh, rather leitmotif i'd go with leitmotif sure or just like effects Let's but like yeah okay I'm, I'll so, be happy so as a leitmotif how yeah. did you decide uh to use this as a okay. leitmotif so um i always like seeing your face when you're because sometimes uh when you're talking to like a screenwriter like <laughs> me you're like, oh, you said leitmotif, and you seem very pleased and surprised. <laughs> yeah, no, actually, I thought it was, no, no, I was more <laughs> just, that, that, was, that was something that, uh, that I could sit down with and, uh, <laughs> and have lunch across from. Um, yes. So uh, the basic thing about writing, I would think, is um, there's, a, there's a thing that Emerson said. I bet you didn't think I'd be saying Emerson right now. He said that genius is not that anyone in this room is a genius, but everyone aspires to being as, as good as, as they can be, right? As talented as they can be, as fun as they can be. He said that genius, the basic faculty in genius is believing that what's true for you is true for the reader, right? The sun, yeah. still, the sun shines today. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, Emerson's idea that if you will give voice to the secret thought in, uh, in you, in you yeah. and you have the courage That's right. to say it, yeah. It will be, you will be amazed at the chord it strikes. In, yeah, in exactly. And, uh, and I remember that... So uh, no, motherfucker, I wasn't surprised that you mentioned <laughs> okay, Emerson. Okay, right on, okay. Um, <laughs> and then, like, there's a, there's a great line of... Um, there's a great line of Laurie Moore that I always think about, uh, and I talk about with, with the writers at NYU, which has to do with listening to the words. Like, if you're talking to someone at a party, and A, they start repeating themselves, 
right? Because uh, writing is a social performance, just done at a bit of a remove, right? And you're judging books the way you're judging someone you're meeting for the first time, right? Do I want to hang? Exactly. Do I want to keep this going, right? So the party, you meet the person, you want to like them, right? And then they're talking and you're liking them and then they start repeating themselves, right? You start looking over their shoulder to see if anyone else has come in. You begin thinking of like, you know, maybe I should get a cab home. You begin thinking about what the, uh, what the food is. And the writers who I like, they have that real sense of like, okay, do I repeat myself, right? Do I, um, how do I make the reader interested? And they all have, also they have that ability that a good speaker does of hearing what they're saying and making a joke out of it. So the sentence I always think about is from this Laurie Moore story. And interestingly, it's not in the New Yorker version of the story. So it's something that either she restored in the book version. It's probably her most famous story. It's a story called You're Ugly Too. Or it's one that she wrote in when she was going over the the final draft. Uh, someone says something, the main character's on a blind date, and the the blind datey or her, uh, you know, the man that she's recently met says something that's disturbing. And uh, Moore writes, alarm buzzed through her mildly, like a T. And the ability for Moore to write buzz through her mildly and then for her ear, right, her brain ear to think, okay, what gives a mild buzz, right? That, and so that's the kind of thing. So she trusted if that works for her, it will work for the reader. So if I'm thinking about Hanson, um, and even before you opened that, I knew that was what you would be hunting towards, um, was like, that's my image. First, I know what he's like because I watched a lot of video of him, right? And then I thought, okay, I'm gonna trust the way I respond to the way he appears on camera, the way his voice sounds. Because just if Emerson is right and Moore is right, if it seems accurate to me, it will match the reader's sense of accuracy. Yes, Tech, and, and I'll say- Thanks for the pad, by the way. Said, when I said trope, there's, I don't think that word's freighted in the way that you, you're worried about it being freighted. I would say I'm using it to mean an effective technique that repeats throughout the work. And uh, I, and I think that this is an effective technique that repeats throughout the work. And I would, I would, I guess my, my question is. Okay. But, but, but Brian, this is just, I don't know if this matches the listener's experience, but like, uh, the reason that I was, so you and I used to hang out. Yes. And, uh, and to be frank, Brian, not, not to inject a bit of emotionalism into, into our podcasting, but I miss hanging out with you. I thought that was really fun. Um, but I say I'm, I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know that life. You know, our, no, it was our lives just literally busy. It, yeah. Literally, just making the yeah. show. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, no, yeah, no, no, I mean literally, yeah. that's yeah. what yeah. happened, right? Um, yeah. But what I love about your writing is that it is awake. Do you know what I mean? It has, nothing, it has nothing to do with like a borrow word like trope, right? And so it is anxious to be a person, and it's anxious to be a writer because you don't know if you're any good, right? And you don't know, yes. regardless of how calm you and I might seem here, or regardless of how you and David might present yourselves if you are arranging something, right? When it's Sunday afternoon at five o'clock and you haven't written for a couple of weeks, right? You're like, holy shit, I was mouthing off and I know the exact size of my talent, right? Yes. Uh, and so one of the things that we do with words like trope or with a word like conceit, or if people say, that's in close, this book was written in close third, is it's just a little bit reassuring. And it's reassuring in a way that I think is bad and makes us do our jobs less well. But it's like if you go to, I used to, we used to have a house near the Sean Gunks where people do uh, uh, rock, rock climbing. 
And the real rock climbers, they are just climbing in uh, shorts and a t-shirt, right? And a little bit of talc, which you need. But the people who are anxious about whether they have the skill, they show up with all the gear. And there are certain words like close third or trope, which are yes. the gear. The which curse are to make of, us, uh, well, yeah. in a way, that's, Seth talks about the, the uh, in a way, it's like the curse of uh, authenticity, of yeah. worrying about being authentic as opposed to just being. Yeah, exactly. And doing yeah. the thing that, 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 that you want to do. So I, I agree. And, and yeah, man, um, I love the way that your brain works. And of course, earlier when you took pains to say there are no geniuses in this room, I mean, the, the, Sad the to truth say. is it, but the truth is that you're chasing it, not you. One is chasing yeah. it, right? One is just trying to deliver in the Emersonian way on like the secret promise. And you're trying your best to get that out there. But as a technique, did these things come fully formed for you? Are you, when you're meeting people in life, did you, while you were writing this book, become somebody who has an exercise as a way to keep yourself alert and engaged? Did you start framing these sentences as you were talking to people? Meaning, you know, you know <clears throat> when you meet somebody in a, in a, a, a store, are, are you immediately saying hangdog face, like a whatever with the eyes, of, you know, be, because your earlier work doesn't have all this in the same way. And so I'm, I'm just wondering how you developed it. Um, so uh, I love quoting Lori Moore because she's so smart about writing. She's pretty smart about everything. Uh, she said that the difference between a writer and a non-writer is uh, the non-writer thinks they'll remember it in the morning. Oh, right? God, that's so true. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. awesome. I write shit yeah. down. Yes, yeah, thank exactly. you for saying yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. That's such an important yeah. thing you just said. Yeah. Take that, give the instruction one further note, right? Is write, write yeah, shit down. You write it time. down, yeah. So, um, wow. so like, uh, there Especially was. Especially if you're a... over 30. In your 20s. <laughs> honestly, in your 20s, it's fine. Uh, yeah. But by the time you get yeah. to be 30, just start writing, yeah. get in the habit. Yeah. Right? Just yeah, and Moore said that when she was about 31. Um, but, like, there was a <laughs> yeah, quote, um, there, it was nice reading. It was nice reading the uh, the review of the book in the Times uh, the other morning, uh, and that was just a great feeling, right? Because there's a line in the book earlier about Edison, and uh, the narrator of the book says that uh, inventors, like artists, live on reviews, right? And that the review in the Times was his official release from duty. And that was kind of how just, that's how you'll always feel about the Times. And the Times quoted a line that's really early in the book, which was one of the ways I wanted to start the book, which is this this book put a hole through my life, now it's your turn. And uh, the the person who did this really lovely piece in the Times, uh, Amy Schloger, I think, am I getting her? Yeah. Schlanger. Schlanger, I yeah. Know, actually, I knew yeah. someone with that last yeah. name who pronounced yeah. it Schlanger. Yeah. I don't I, know you you saw my anxiety about That's one of the things yes. when you read, if, you're, if one of your main interfaces with the world I made fun of you for using the word trope, and then I used interface as a verb. You should kick me out of this office right now. But you anyway, didn't say you didn't. There was a, a, <laughs> I didn't say you impactful. Didn't say impactful. Yeah, but it's coming. You didn't um, say impactful. But so. uh, but if one of the key ways you interface with the world is reading, you never know how people's names sound. But anyway, she quoted this. She quoted that line, and that was a case, Brian, where. I was walking, I was crossing 58th Street uh, and 8th Avenue. I was walking up Broadway and I was crossing over to uh, CNN Center to go in the subway. And I was thinking, I was having a hard time with part of the book. And I thought, you know what I should, you know how I should begin this book? This, this book put a hole through my life, now it's your turn. And then I pulled out my phone and wrote that down because having the impulse to say that, I thought would be a great way of expressing to the reader how 
difficult it had been. And so if you're watching footage yeah. and you see a man whose face looks a certain way or you there's a section there's a period of the book where you you became very fascinated with hairlines and foreheads and <laughs> uh, as and I became yeah. equally fascinated uh, by those things uh, but as a you would watch. Would you pause the thing and then go right down? Sort of, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, would yes. you, but would you workshop it? Because the other thing that separates writers is writers know when they better uh, they should take another look and tighten and revise and make more entertaining, or when it's done. So, how much did you grind on those things? Because they're a, they, they if you, you take the mountain climbing thing, in a weird way, they, these descriptions of these people are the footholds and handholds to get us up the mountain that's great difficult stuff so i'm gonna i'm gonna answer as if this is the redford movie quiz show yeah. i'm gonna answer the i'm gonna answer your questions in a different order i'm gonna answer the second, second one first. first um there's a great thing that muriel spark and i don't know if you do this but writing is great and what a what a gift to be able to make a living with communication and with words and telling stories right but uh, it is difficult, and there are times when you're less good. And so, one of the ways that you try to insulate your little your little down coat of anxiety and the warmth is with other people's quotes, right? Because a, if they're giving you uh, advice, it means that they needed advice. And also, if you like their work, it's like, hey, this will help me be as good as they are. And Muriel Spark, you know, she wrote uh, *The Prime of Mrs. Jean Brodie* and *Loitering with Intent*. Uh, great writer. She said that. I think in A Far Cry from Kensington, which is a later novel of hers, she said that when she was writing, she always tried to have the sound of somebody who was writing a letter to a friend, which is intimate, but you're still not there with them. So you have to describe stuff they aren't seeing. And I think you do need as a reader, tell me if it's the same for you when you're writing things that are dialogue based, but are beautiful stories with incredible amounts of character and charm and insight, right? Um, you need to have a reader that you can trust. So there was a moment in the book uh, the book is dedicated to two people, one of whom is my agent, who did an amazing job, Bill Clegg, and the other person is dedicated to is a colleague at NYU, uh, a young writer named Lisa Gerard. And the reason it's dedicated to her is that she was someone whose taste I knew well. She was a brilliant reader and a brilliant writer. And so I said to her about four years ago now, I said, I'm working on a book that's really complicated. Would you mind taking a look at part of it? And if someone ever says that to you, uh, you, there's a good reason maybe to say no because she ended up broiled. Yeah, exactly. Cause she, um, she read, uh, I don't know, seven drafts. Like I knew her taste. So I would, when you were asking if I had workshop stuff and I know this is how TV as good as your TV gets written, right? I would have three or four different versions, five or six different versions of a joke or an insight. And so I would say, Lisa, here's the list. You know, I, I mean, think too, yeah, that. Dave yeah. and I can do that yeah. with each other. Yeah, exactly. For for sure, yeah. and Amy sometimes, I'll, yeah, yeah. You know, so yeah, that will you all, will you also make a list? Like, if you have a great line of dialogue, will you have two or three alternates? And it's you'll more give? if I can know. Uh, I'd say more. What's that? Is it Kelly? I mean, is it um uh, E Cummings? The circle word, the circle, and then all the other choices that I don't know. That's what a famous. That is. I don't know it's what a that famous is. poem. I can't remember. Um, someone will tell us, but um, the best is when it just you could come up with it, but then when it's not just there then yeah of course you're really trying to figure out the exact also i i i'm so comfortable writing metaphor that's what i, I really live in it and of course i'm always but will you do yeah but it. will you do like let's say you know there's room for a really good line right uh, a good a good exit line from a scene or a good way uh -huh. to make a scene deeper 
Will you have like three or four different versions of it and you will run it by the ear of someone that you trust and, and you won't tell them which are the well, two that you yeah, think are good? I, I, yeah. I, I had, like, you know, the, the moment I finally felt like a writer, I've said this once or twice on the podcast, but only truly from, from all of it is like last year, maybe not, it was a little over a year ago, I, got, I, had, I had a Shouts and Murmurs and that for me was like the greatest thing that ever happened to me. That's so good. And, um, you know, not counting families, obviously, I'm just saying it. But no, I will no, say, but, 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 for but, someone who grew up how I did and, and where, where um, I didn't become a writer until late, and for all the rest of the stuff, getting into that book was a really big deal. And I will say, I basically wrote that thing in a fever on this couch. And Amy was sitting across from, from me, and uh, this idea occurred to me, and I just started writing it on my phone, which I never do. Huh. And I just started writing this thing on my phone. Like the thing you're saying, where I heard a line and I was like, "I'm not waiting," yeah. and I just have to remember. I just and I got to this. I, I maybe I, I think I wrote 800 words really, really, really fast, and I just said, "Can I just read you this really quickly?" And I read it to her, and that was like reading it. To, and and she was like, "Yeah, that that's gonna go in the New Yorker," and I was like, no. <laughs> "And but then I wrote." So then I said, "Okay," and I'm gonna go and write and I went and I wrote it you know because that wasn't writing it and then I went and wrote it and then I sent it to three friends and I was like is it funny enough and I there were like five things that, that I just couldn't get right and so before I sent it in because I felt like I had it in my I knew yeah. I, I could sense that it was going to be able to be a shouts and I was like a casual and so I was like oh and I grinded like motherfucker on probably four lines right huh. four yeah. lines that yeah, i course. wasn't satisfied they yeah, kept yeah. nagging it at me to nail so yes and uh so george saunders have you um you ever had him on the uh, no i would love yeah he's to. brilliant but I like he communicated once twice. i don't know he um uh he he makes a great case for uh, you can make an argument uh, and Lane Coutel makes this argument in um, yes. in Franny, right? Uh -huh. That all the really great writers weren't such goddamn word squeezers, right? That you don't have to be a word squeezer. Saunders makes the other argument, which is that the reader is deciding to stay with you line by line. And so if you've lost them a little bit and then you come in with something like that, that then they will decide to stick around, right? Um, and so you might think I'm overdoing it on those four lines, but those four lines may have been the ways that you saved the casual, that, that made it so the casual worked. It's work. so important. Yeah. yeah. It's so freaking important. The four lines are everything. Yeah. Are yeah. you kidding? No. Yeah, but, but, you but, you can make, but you can make the argument the other way too, which is just... And, 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 and no, this, you yeah. brought up Lane Coutrell. Yeah. So no, you have to make the decision to show the love that he couldn't. And you, <laughs> right? So no, and showing the love to the reader and showing the love... Uh, on the page means trying to be as open-hearted in these lines as you can. And Lane Control was open-hearted, but he couldn't show yeah. that he was open-hearted. No, what uh, Amos says that you have to love the reader, he's actually, it's a, it's the title essay in the book I was mentioning about him before, uh, the title essay in The War Against Cliché. He said that Joyce is great, but he didn't love the reader as you have to do. And that someone like what you're describing and what I'm describing and uh, what Saunders is talking about, those are ways of loving the reader. It's just like they're sitting down at the table. You are making a fuss over them. You are the waiter. You are the cook. You have, you're the person who actually designed the restaurant, right? And the person who's come into that space feels your love in every aspect of what you're serving them. So obviously that's the way you and I go about it. But even when you were saying that, I also think that uh, like Flaubert, 
forgive me for uh, do it go, yeah okay go, go for it but like but i was reading something i was reading an essay about him and he was marveling that like the people he loved to read like balzac or victor hugo i'm not gonna sound like an asshole and cut off the h on that guy's name because we say h's here in this country proudly um but they didn't give a shit and he was shocked that they didn't give a shit and you and you and i it's different in movies maybe um but uh, but you and I have read writers who we love, like King. I love King. And there are moments in King where he doesn't care about whether the dialogue is always sparkling, or he doesn't care if the, if the, if the verb is a killer verb every time. And when you're reading King, I read it uh, in two days, and that book is like a thousand pages. And when you have that kind of, when you have that kind of experience, you're like, all the stuff that we do maybe is bullshit. So one of the things I was trying to do here was to have a book that would work maybe both ways, that it would go like a rocket, but it would also do the other thing King, too. I just was King. So those the books you see there, those are like, I have all these old first editions and, and these are ones that I have doubles of. So I brought them in here because I can finally uh, sell them back for nothing. They're, they're just, but I have to give them away basically because I have the doubles of them. But King always would talk about Dear Reader and taking the reader by the yeah. hand. And Did he say that? He always talks yeah. about taking the reader yeah. by the Yeah, he's very engaged yeah. with the idea of, of the reader. And it's certainly, I think, you know, the, 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 his, his, his work for a long time. I'm just sitting here thinking about whether the writers I love mostly do or don't. Well, who are the writers care that you about? Love? Yeah. Well, no, you know, some do. And I was wondering about Joyce if that changed, right? If Dublin, in Dubliners, if he did, and then suddenly he didn't. Because I do find his later work pretty impenetrable because I haven't read it in class and I haven't read it with study guides, right? And you should that that short essay. Um, it's only like six pages or seven the pages. A, the Amos one. Yeah, War I've Against read the Cliche. Amos. Yeah, I've read the, the Amos book. But, you know, but that essay is great. But you were saying that Joyce. Uh, well, you I'm haven't interested read. in the yeah, question. Yeah, I, ne I never read the last one. I read the other ones. I'm interested. I don't in even the, want to say the title the of the last one. Is so um, much fun to read. Yeah, I love um, I love Ulysses, but. I loved it also because I heard the audiobook version of it. I, I had read it in class and liked it, but the audiobook made it way easier. That was the most fun of any entertainment experience I had in like 2017. And I was shocked by how alive and dirty it was. So I thought also that maybe Amos wasn't entirely fair to it. But th who are the other writers that, you, that you're thinking about? I'm trying to like, think, well, no, I would say like, I, I really can't overstate. I, I would say I wrestle with, um, I grapple with Mamet all the time. It really matters to me his essays for up until you the read year. his essays I, until the year nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, no, no, I understand the. But we'll, we'll leave his From politics year to the side. Down, but also, yeah. it inform. Yeah. No, I don't care. Like, I don't care about an artist's politics except when the politics um, yeah. bleed in. So having become work. a play, yeah. So then that's. But I didn't up until know that you then, were that, the essays yeah. I'm yeah. a fanatic for. I know, I know a lot of them by heart. Like they. Really matters. Which book? A like lot. the the restaurants one? Um, the one. Well, writing in restaurants yeah. is amazing. Things I've learned playing poker on a hill or pool, um, bitches, all that stuff. When I was a kid, you know, when I was young, but I don't think he cared very much. There's a, about the reader and exactly. I don't think he loved the reader. Yeah. I think he was after something else, and I'm interested in that you know pam houston's first i guess how to talk to a hunter is something yeah. i love yeah. and that's a perfect example where she's so determined to connect yeah with you right so you so don't yeah you don't read his plays i would assume like I've you're read all the plays okay so, but you read the essays more all right what, what are the plays of his what are the plays of his that you love the most have you not read the plays much oh please 
you obviously have. Yeah. Um, so like uh, I uh, like uh, I mean, you were talking about Darren Strauss. He and I quote obviously uh, Glenn Gary all the time. Speed the Plow is the most accurate thing that's yeah. ever been written about Hollywood. Seriously, Speed the Plow is yeah. the single most accurate thing that's ever been written about Hollywood. Nothing has changed. It is the that that is the. I, I saw Speed the Plow when it first opened. This um, fam girl, I was her family was they were um, cultured and. I wasn't, and they took me to see it. I was in college or something, and it, you know, it's like a but, but, but I don't want to get in the way of anyone quoting my stuff. Uh, I want to answer your draft thing. Maybe I could do it later because it's sort of answer a long it, story. and then I'll quote something. Okay, you but answer. then you I wanted speak. to, uh, but I want to talk about Mammoth for a second. Yeah, but I was you curious speak about the draft is, thing. Okay. Go. Okay, but actually, let me do the Mammoth thing for a second. Please cut this okay, for go. people who okay, don't go. care go. about. Um, I, I decided we're going to go. And Gary. Okay, it was fun thinking about how Glenn Gary works because. That character who's played by Jonathan Price in the movie, James Link. Yeah, Link. I've always assumed that was an internal joke for Mamet because he is the thing that links the first act and the second act. That has to have been a joke that's on purpose in the same way that Suzanne Collins, when she's writing The Hunger Games, that the guy who saves uh, Katniss by giving her bread, his name is Peta, right? But like James Link... The only thing that would connect Act 1 and Act 2 would be James Link coming in who's been sold the slushy land and coming in to take it off. And I was curious. I've never had yeah. that thought. Yeah, but I mean, when, I've yeah. seen the play yeah. performed four times and I've read it. I read it all the time. It's just incredibly funny. Now, he must have, he has to have been careful about every word there, right? Because when you watch productions of it or when you watch the movie, they are saying every one of those lines. So it may be when he's writing prose, he cares less about that. Um, but let me say the draft thing. And... Uh, Oh no! I think well, yeah. no, yes, please. I, no, I think he cares tremendously about yeah. every single word. Yeah. I don't think he loves the reader. That's all. Oh, it's different. I think thing, he yeah. loves. I think he cares deeply about. Oh no! I think for him, he's writing for his dead father and for his sister, and I think he yeah. doesn't give a shit about anybody else really. And is as a his labor. He doesn't lawyer. have the to go back to the sound. He doesn't have the lady on the front porch listening to the baseball game. You know, <laughs> uh, the sounder has. No, he's showing he's showing his labor lawyer dad how wised up he is. That's what I think yeah. is going yeah. on there, and so yeah. it's a different yeah. um, situation. But go ahead about the draft. You know, it's, the story is so long that uh, I could tell it later. But the basic no, thing about the basic thing about drafts that everyone will say for this is for people who um, this is something that Saunders said too, which is super interesting, is that uh, and it, it's also how Fitzgerald. We were talking about him before, or he was about to be spoken about. But a lot of writing, I don't know if this is the same for you, is, uh, okay, do you know John Schwarzwelder? Do you know who he is? Who? John Schwarzwelder. He's no. a genius. Um, he wrote... No, I've never heard of him. He's famous for having written the largest number of Simpsons episodes. And so when people list the best Simpsons episodes, it always, a, a large number of them come from him. And he wrote so many that people thought he was a construct, that it was a made up, the name sounds the ridiculous. Simpsons is a real lacuna. Yeah. Oh, no, it's uh, a great... I know. Okay. I yeah. know it's just a lacuna. Yeah. It's not... Um, but uh, but he never was interviewed and he wouldn't be photographed. Uh, so people thought maybe he was made up. And then finally he agreed to be interviewed by The New Yorker after he had retired from writing The Simpsons. But he's, if you love Simpsons episodes, there's maybe a one in two chance that's a John Swartwold episode that you're quoting. And he said this great thing. Someone asked him, how do you do your writing? Like how much time and effort do you give it? And he says, I give it all my time and all my effort. Darn it, that's the only way I've learned how to do it. But there is a shortcut that I use, which is um, since writing is comparatively difficult, but rewriting is comparatively easy, um, I try to write my, my first drafts as quickly as I possibly can. 
putting in, you know, pattern sequences and pattern dialogue like, Homer, don't do that. Okay, I won't do that. So that then, like, it's done. There's a draft that's done. It's crappy, but it's done. And he says, it's like a crappy little elf has walked in overnight and done all the work (laughs) and then left my office with the tip of his crappy hat. And now I can rewrite it. And rewriting is way easier. Um, And the weird thing about him saying that, and he said, that's a tip I want to pass on to everyone reading this interview in The New Yorker. And if it works, uh, you know, you have to send me royalties also. Um, But the weird thing is, as you read interviews of writers, most of them give some version of that experience, which is you have the thing written and you have the story, you have the dialogue, and then you bring to it your ability almost as a reader and one of the things that one of the reasons I think that works, this kind of is drafting off of what Schwarzwelder was saying, is that um, I don't know. Let's say uh, let's say you're Nabokov. Nabokov burned all his drafts, so we would never see this. And Fitzgerald said to Hemingway, who liked to pick on Fitzgerald, that a lot of my work gets done in the drafts. Is that what it's like for you? And it turns out that Hemingway had to do huge numbers of drafts, but he really wanted Fitzgerald to be wrong-footed. So he said, no, it's not like that at all. It just comes out. Blah, blah, blah. Right. But for most writers, they will say some version of that. And there's a brilliant thing that uh, I'll do the Fitzgerald thing in a second. There's a brilliant thing that Zadie Smith said. And when Zadie Smith and John Schwartzwelder, when all they share is the is the letter Z in their names, because letter Z doesn't get used that often in people's names. Right. Um, but when they say the same thing, it's really worth our thinking about. Zadie Smith said in a speech about craft, what, you know, that's the made up tropey word that writers use for how we get our stuff done, how we try to make money off communication and stories. Um, in this great lecture she did about craft, it's called That Crafty Feeling, really witty name. Um, she said, there's only one bit of solid gold, uh, there's only, only one bit of 24 karat solid gold plated advice I have to offer you, which is step away from the vehicle. And you're like, that's a witty thing to say. But it's one of those things where you get nervous. It's not going to be smart because Zadie Smith is brilliant. I don't need her to tell me, put it in a drawer. And then she says, but when you get back into the vehicle, get back in as the reader, not as the writer. You have to be the reader of your own stuff. And I kind of thought about why. Zadie Smith has written, I think she's written 12 books so far. And if she has the longest career in history, which is what we would hope for her, maybe she will write 36 books over the course of her great career. But how many books do you think she'll read in the course of her life? Thousands, right? So any person who writes will always be more experienced as a reader than as a writer. And so by doing drafts, by doing what Schwarzwelder and Zadie Smith are talking about, you then are able to bring not your limited experience as a, as a writer, but your incredible experience as a reader to your own work. And so then it's like when you're looking at your draft, it's like reading as Harry Potter, which is you have a wand and you have this magical ability to look at a paragraph and make it match your taste as a reader just by tapping it. So that was the thing I wanted that to tracks. say about drafts. No, that yeah. tracks. Did you turn it this particular... So the drafts for this book are terrible. Some of them came out better, some of them came out, like, but you, did so, I turn so, it? So something yeah. like, you know, so I was excited to see Arthur Robinson on The Maddow Show. I'd read about the Oregon signature. Oh, that was years. a tough one, yeah. He wore an open Carhartt jacket yeah. and had something <laughs> of Clint Eastwood's craggy magnetism. A person with the confidence. Of having been looked at their whole lives with pleasure. Right? Yes. Yeah. And, and this guy's an asshole. He's yeah. one of the villains of the book. But, but he has a tragic story. He's a villain like, he's like Two-Face in Batman, right? He, there's a reason why he's a villain. He's like, something terrible happened to him. 
But anyway, yeah, so that, that's a great example. So in that case, you're just, uh, I, I assume this is how you do your work too. Like I was looking at him and I could feel his confidence and I could see if you watch that, if you watch that video, you guys, you know, uh, find my email on the NYU site and write me if you don't have this experience. But you can find the video. Rachel Maddow did a great interview with him and he looks like he would have been handsome as a young man, right? And you could feel his confidence. Like he was saying the he was bringing the um, the weakest uh, dog's breakfast of explanations and excuses before serving that to Rachel Maddow, but with total confidence, and he didn't care, right? He's just he's twirling back and forth. Well, and in his then chair. you show yeah that earlier he didn't have. It. I mean, you yeah. you go and show aspects. It turns of his, out, yeah, it turns out he was yeah, he kind yeah, of create. Yeah. He, he came in yeah. into 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 that clear, but, but interesting thing no, about but, him and about some some of these other people is that hubris seems to be, and it ties into Mammon and Glengarry and all the rest of it, and uh, Speed the Plash, certainly. But also, I would say, um, in the Wallace book, you certainly train this eye on yourself and are aware of any young writer's hubristic impulses. Uh, all of our just wanting yeah. to be great, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, your own hubris. Yeah. Uh, as a Hubris plays out over and over again in this book to me, I think. I don't even know if you ever use the word. I don't think you do. Mm -mm. But it's still heavily in play. Hucksterism, whatever. But it's not just hucksterism. It's a kind of willful deification of, because of the denial of the reality of the world and of our own mortality and of our collective mortality is like the ultimate hubristic act. And I wonder, when you've teased out what's at the root of that, what conclusions do you draw? Uh, what a pleasure to be talking to you, Brian. Um, so uh, I think this is true of anybody, anybody who takes an extremely contrary position to where the mainstream is. And it's, you know, that's dicey because sometimes their contrary positions are trying to be correct, right? But in general, I think that... Um, I think that for a lot of the people who are called deniers, and obviously I call them that because the section of the book they're in is the the 200-page section of the book that's called deniers. But I think um, if the whole culture is saying climate change is happening, and then the culture is also assigning you a value that is different than the one that we all assign ourselves, right? We all, when we're, when we're walking through, we all think, Maybe I'm the coolest person in this room. Maybe I'm the best scientist, you know, in this lab, right? And it's very hard to reconcile ourselves to the fact that maybe we're not. Yeah, what right? our age would call main character energy. Yeah, okay, that's great. Main yeah. character energy. Uh, is that is that I, I I had heard it said in a different in a different more one syllable way of that, but yes, main yes. character energy. Um, but uh, but then the culture is telling you like if you are as Fred Singer as a good example, and Arthur is another good example, they're telling you that you aren't valuable right and the same culture that is saying climate change is happening is saying that you are not valuable if you can then say the culture is wrong about climate change it's a way of saying the culture is wrong about me and so i think that motivates a lot of people who have contrarian positions right well uh, but here i thought that was such a good answer to your question is, but here's yeah. where we have to turn slightly because we, earlier when we started i said the book's joyful misery. And you said, I'm not sure about the misery part, or I would leave out the misery part. 
But part of why I think this is not just a good book or like a great read, but why I think this is a great book, like a great book, like one of the great books, one of the great nonfiction books, is because, yes, this book is about the existential reality of what happens if we allow uh, the world to warm by another four degrees. Uh, but it's also about vaccines without ever saying the yeah. word, or maybe the word shows up once. Uh, it shows up on the notes. Yeah, maybe yeah. it shows up yeah. one, only yeah. one time or something like that, right? I, I mean, you almost, it, it, the only part where you, you didn't pull any punches in this book. There's one line I know you must have, uh, there's, there's a line in the book that's the opposite of it. There's one line that I bet you wish you had back, but which I'll talk about later. But you don't pull any punches in the book. But even you, there's a section in this book about something that happened when when people become masters of misinformation and disinformation. You know, Goebbels didn't show up one day and suddenly become the mastermind of communication for the Nazis. He ideated and tried and <laughs> did all this stuff, right? And so he workshopped it out are, of town. Yeah, he workshopped. So there are. That was his version of the cat. Like, hey, you know what? I finally got my shot, and I'm gonna do it. It's gonna. So, uh, but um, uh, but uh, be giving me a cinema. And so no, but but here here's here's the thing. The thing about Ray's disease. How do you pronounce it? Um, Ray's syndrome. Ray's, yeah. Ray's syndrome. Yeah. You it you we we glide. We reference it a few times. We kind of do glide through that yeah i think it's like seven pages yeah. or something like that because it was i i could feel it was too much to bear yeah not to sorry yeah. it was that was too much to handle yeah. for you uh and for me as a re it was too much to handle right it deserves its own there, there are there are deserves a book it, yeah. right yeah. um you'll tell me which the yeah. best yeah. one is man who sold the world okay um and uh, william i don't know how to pronounce his last name That's but, but, but essentially you know the people the training wheels got removed when these people, uh, these disinformation people worked for, for the aspirin companies to pretend that uh, it was an open question right. as to whether a aspirin was causing the, the this head, yeah. syndrome. The head of the aspirin Speak foundation said, no, I, I, I was curious what you were going to say, but I just wanted to supply the quote, which is, at that point, it was two years in and they knew that, you know, there were four studies showing that giving your child aspirin uh, would cause a certain number of kids, small number, but about, you know, maybe 600,000 kids a year uh, to start vomiting, go into a coma and die. This was if you gave them aspirin? Aspirin, who, they had a virus. At if what they age? Had a virus. You, if someone has? Anywhere, anywhere before, let's say from between four and 17, 18, it had something to do with puberty being totally over, it stopped being a problem. People wouldn't die of Ray syndrome. Once they were like, I think the youngest, I think the oldest person, youngest person would be about four or five, the oldest person would be about 18 or and 19. And this is why you rarely give aspirin to you don't give, children? Yeah, you don't do it anymore. Yeah. No, but children yeah, don't get Exactly. It. But there used to be a thing called children's aspirin. It would say on the label right. for the Saint relief Joseph's of symptoms of the children, flu. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I remember one of the doctors said, not a single one of the aspirin companies has been anything but awful about this. Um, there were these studies that showed, there were four studies by the early 80s that showed that if you gave your kid aspirin, there was some small, some small number of people uh, having that experience, giving it to their kids, the kids would die. And so the government tried to, you know, put the word around and they were stopped by 
really intelligent lobbyist for the Aspirin Foundation. And the quote that Brian, I was amazed that you remembered this as clearly as you did. Um, he said, someday someone is going to find the real cause of Ray syndrome. Now that's going to be an interesting day. And at that time, that guy absolutely knew. And he knew that there were kids dying, right? Yeah, 1,400 kids. Yeah, that's right. Like yeah, that. yeah. I'm looking, yeah. I'm not looking yeah, yeah. at that page. Yeah. I'm at 1,400 yeah. set, some weird yeah. number, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but this is, there were a couple of moments where I was reading the book where. I think that, but let me just say for the reader, just because this is a, the name of the committee that was designed to keep aspirin on the shelves and to not have it be regulated was Committee on the Care of Children. Right. Now, that's and that the comes over, over and over again that, yeah. well, the ass <laughs> section. Uh, <laughs> is really incredible, funny. Yeah. but um, there's a, a group that accidentally n named themselves the Ass Coalition, that's, <laughs> and, and it's very satisfying. And, and he, I mean, yeah, he, yeah. It, it's it's the borshiest joke in the thing yeah. is the wide uh, whatever. But um, but David, there's a line that just broke my heart. Um, Forgotten by all except the families. The tiny lives didn't weigh on anyone in particular. Oh, that's great. And okay. I wrote down in this page what I wrote down to ask you is. Because the point is, warning labels got blocked. Now, eventually they didn't, but in this yeah. stage, warning labels got blocked. The capsule version of the climate fights. So compressed, you can see the whole sweep. By now, you could write it yourself, and I can include it in a story about America's climate. The fight ate through four years. The tiny lives didn't weigh on anyone in particular. And what I wrote down to ask you is, so what's your conclusion about that fact, man? Like, like throughout the book, you are bringing to the fore some truly dastardly evil behavior. There's this moment where you ask this question, and I misread it slightly because I went back and you asked this question about like how do they shave? Oh yeah, that's McCain asked that. Oh uh, right, John McCain shave? asked yeah. it right yeah, in the yeah, hearing. Yeah. Um, but what I read it as, because then you then I looked at further at the quote, and it's about the, the windows. The, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they have to look at themselves. Yeah. But no, that's my yeah. my yeah. question is I read it as. Yeah. How do they look at themselves? Like in the way you know, one of the great moments in Franny and Zoe is that when. Uh, you know, because of his handsomeness, he shaves and he looks straight ahead. He can't allow himself. He don't. He won't let himself look. Oh, at that's his Zoe. Yeah, sorry. Face. I was thinking it was lame. Yeah, but no, of course. Yeah, Zoe yeah, yeah. won't let himself yeah. look at his face. Right after after he kicks uh, his mom. He, after he kicks he, Bessie out of the bathroom. He, he yeah. he's too. Yeah. He knows and yeah. he won't let himself the yeah. vanity. But that's great. But this is the question in this. How, when was the last time you read that? I, I used to read it every year. Got it. And I haven't read it in. 15 years. And it, it reads like a play, doesn't it? You never thought about making it into something? Because it's already, it's already, but it's already, a, it's, I mean, it's all dialogue. It's all dialogue. It's already, yeah. You don't want anyone yeah. to do it. Yeah. No. Yeah. You can't. I, yeah. I used to read it every year. Yeah. Anna just read it again. Uh, and so she was talking to me about it, my, or my daughter, and, and she was just talking to me about it. But I know you, at a certain point, I, it would take me a week to recover, I think, if I read it now. Like, really? I think so. His books, yeah. I recently, I recently read aloud the first 35 pages of Seymour and Introduction to yeah. me. We were just at home and I read, and that's, it's too much to bear for me, but- uh, Did you like it? It's my, yeah. I love it. By the way, he hated it. I, well, no one knows. No, no, I mean, yeah. So there's a, let's talk about him for a second again. Please cut this, but, uh, but if there are people who really care about Salinger, because I've been thinking about this for a while, um, 
because I love Seymour also, yeah. right? And it was interesting to me, like when he would sign the book, when he would sign Raise High the Roof being Seymour, yeah. you know, uh, uh, Nabokov and Updike both thought that was the best thing he wrote of all the things was Raise High, right? Right. Amazing. Raise High is perfect. Yeah. So yeah. for me, Seymour is... But he would, say, he would say, I apologize that it's with this other thing, which just is bad. So he, I think it's one of those things where he got feedback that it was bad and he believed the feedback. Similarly, like Vonnegut, when we were kids, let me just say this, yeah. uh, and then I would love to talk about my answer yes. to that. Uh, but uh, but when, we, when we were um, shaving, um, when we were kids, uh, our parents all had breakfast of champions yeah. uh, on their ping pong tables or on their night tables or by the pool, right? And that thing was a bestseller. Like what a great world that was that Breakfast of Champions, this thrilling, weird, cool book, was a number one bestseller for like 40 or 50 weeks. Um, however, it was reviewed badly, and that was a time where I think uh, book critics who were great, they would make someone pay if they'd had a huge popular success. And so, you know, I think uh, the delayed huge success of uh, Slaughterhouse-Five had made people want to punish him maybe in some way. And it was very sad to see in later interviews Vonnegut saying, I'd give an A to A minus Sirens of Titan, A minus to you know uh, Cat's Cradle, A plus to Slaughterhouse Five, and then C. He did, he gave himself a report card to uh, Breakfast of Champions. It's like you don't have to believe them. Like it's a great book. Okay, yeah. I'm so glad you brought up Vonnegut because this reads like Vonnegut. Yeah. And yeah, your book. I was, yeah, I was reading him a lot. Yeah, you're. Uh, well, I yeah. believe it because yeah. I had written that down at Sadie, yeah. which is this is like a Vonnegut novel. And I'd said it a lot during pandemic. And this is also a pandemic novel. Yeah, that's right. And it, this is, feels like it's about everything that's going on. But this is the question, man. Amy sometimes will ask me this. We'll watch these people lying on television. And she'll say, like, how do they live with themselves? It's like this constant. Okay, but what she's, okay, what she's also saying, what Amy is also saying to you is, uh, I don't lie to you that much, and I hope you're not lying to me that much. So it's a way of you guys communicating to yourselves that you guys are doing. Well, but it's know, also seeing her catatonic. No, it's the catatonic really, thing. I of always being think in front when people of. No, no, this is uh, that's a different uh, kind of. Uh, if you were if you were writing that dialogue, right? Those two people that they happen to be you, but if you're writing that dialogue, you would understand that what what Amy is saying to you is. I don't want you lying to me that much. Oh, and, sure. Yeah, no, the yeah, subject. Yeah. But let's yeah. say, let's uh, let's um, allow that those conversations. One might have those conversations. Yeah. No, one no, is no, always there's having. A, there's a. These are a dinners with friends. This is yeah. the particular lying of the. Let's say the group of people who, who are, are killing paid the kids. Yeah, to, to help kill those kids the kids. Die. Yeah. Because this is the thing. It's not metaphor. There's evidence. These people knew. Let's say the aspirin was killing no question, these kids. No question. They knew. Yeah. So in the same way, there's this great thing that happens in the book where David's describing a trope and it's a hilarious run too and it's hilarious and horrible where there's this phony thing that happened where a bunch of non-scientists' names got on a document and Arthur's document. it goes from 35,000 yeah. scientists signed this to 17,000 yeah, scientists yeah, to 33,000 yeah. and it's all made yeah. up. Yeah. It's all nonsense. But the question is, are these people self-aware that they're engaging in monstrous activities? So, uh, for 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 in the, in the yeah, novelistic yeah. sense. So, right? for listeners who are interested, um, 
there's a it comes up in the book, but there was a documentary that was made about Marlboro, uh, and it was really fun to write the history of Marlboro cigarettes because I didn't know that it was a woman's cigarette to begin the, with. The cigarette section is the part I knew. I would say you knew the that part I read last the least closely oh, because okay. it's the yeah. part that I was the you most already knew familiar yeah. with. Um, but it's great. Yeah. I mean, it's yes. great. Did, did you know that uh, that that we were within a Harris? We, we were within. Um, we were within a rain's breath or a spur's breath of not having the Marlboro cowboy, but the Marlboro taxi driver. I didn't. Know okay, that. it was no, really, right. yeah. That was no, but the hair's funny. no, yeah. the hair's breath that I didn't know about. Yeah, was that it was a woman's was cigarette? The, no, was yeah. that 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 if not for the scandal in the Clinton administration, the thing was teed up. Oh yeah, exactly. Ready to go. Yeah. Um, that, there were moments. There were like four moments in the book where. Yeah, that was a shock. And I was hoping, by the way, when, that when you read that, you'd, you'd have forgotten that Monica is coming because it's going in the right direction. And you're wondering well, that's the one line I why think is wish this? You yeah. There's one line about her that I thought maybe I'd be interested to see that because that, that I think that's a solid did. that's a solid joke in my opinion. But but to go back, <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. It, the, the, yes, yeah. I just yes, I'm not arguing with the line yeah. at all. Um, God damn, man! There, I would just say there are little moments in this thing where it is so. I'm so glad Vonnegut came up and also like basically David and I are talking and it's a wide ranging conversation and we're both at times verbose but also David will do things in the book like he'll just someone will be going on and on about science that they're going to deliver and then he'll just casually say uh, results weren't quite there and vitamin uh, C yeah, yeah he'll so just he say knows, results yeah. weren't quite there yeah. and leading and, and, and you'll sort of step back for a sec as you're reading and you'll go oh but that didn't stop this motherfucker did it it didn't <laughs> and it never does and so, what are you saying about you dude i gotta know because it, it's not enough so in the way you have an excuse yeah, so, it's so, not so, enough yeah, so here's, so here's what are you answer. saying about human yeah. nature okay so but uh, uh, i have an answer that i wasn't going to give which i'll give in a second but let me finish what i meant about the cigarettes because if you're curious about this uh, that chapter some people played a wonderful trick on marlboro they said yeah. That, yeah. That's the yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Come on. Wait, wait. You, yeah, of course. It. Wait, we'll you didn't it. like that joke? I thought that was a perfectly done joke. A friend of yeah. Okay. It's the only, the only Seriously? thing I did in the whole book. Uh, so, in the whole yeah. book, it's a solidly designed joke. Okay. But okay, so you're gonna so answer okay. this question. Um, uh, okay. So uh, so you can see someone actually grappling with this, uh, if you're curious, and it's a really highly educated man. His name was. I think Helmut Wakem, he's not quoted in the book, it's just something, I think he is in the notes to the book. Um, but he was the head of scientific research for uh, Philip Morris. And a British documentary company from, from Thames Television played a trick on Marlboro. They said, hey, let us do a documentary about the Marlboro story. And they were like, okay, we want a bigger slice of the British pie. We want a, a bigger, we, we want a bigger helping of shepherd's pie. So we'll let you do this documentary. And the documentary was incredibly smart. They just took five cowboys and uh, I think six cowboys or five cowboys, but, um, but they're dying of lung cancer. And it talks about what their feeling was like and, uh, and how they started smoking because it, you were connecting Marlboro with manhood. And now, you know, I'm going to die a young man is a crushing moment from that chapter. Um, in the documentary, uh, which aired one time on Tamf Television, and then Philip Morris used all their money and said, you know, we're 
you can only air it that one time. We're shipping all copies of the all existing copies of this documentary to like the Felt Norris Vault. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The circus. Yeah, exactly. The rock and roll circus, yeah. uh, with a little uh, note on it saying "to be destroyed." However, there are copies on YouTube, and it's called uh, "Death in the West: The Marlboro Story." And I think in part three, I think it's split up into four parts on YouTube. Uh, Dr. Wakeham speaks, and what he says is look, being alive causes death. So what are we supposed to do? Not be born? So that's the answer they give, which is something is going to kill you. And so it's not bad if the thing that I'm Push giving for, you... Go that's, further. That's the, like, that's, go that further. is It was fascinating to watch the, this guy's the, face. That's the, okay, here's my answer, which you're not going to like, and then I'm happy to... So I wasn't going to say this, but I thought that at a certain point when I was writing it, I thought that I was writing... Uh, an extremely Gen X, you didn't think I was going to say that, an extremely Gen X book, by which I meant it's not our job to morally judge them. It's our job to say, here's what's going on, and then you can judge, right? So that, but that's um, that's the way we've always approached stuff. Like you, you're doing a show called Billions, where everybody is acting immorally, right? One person is acting immorally in a way that will protect um, but I would suggest to you that um, David and I had a very clear to us idea about what we wanted to show about what America was about the way in which characteristics stood in for character right about how how uh, high IQ, verbal acuity, charm and power stood in for qualities of character and it was a there was this fundamental misreading of what mattered. And so we were interested in that, right? And so you're gonna we're gonna profile, we're gonna platform that and then hopefully hope that the viewers, the readers, were going to have an emotional connection and then be forced to question that emotional. Now, whether that happened or not, whether we execute, that's different, right? Mark Helpern talks about the job is to throw the rock as far as you can into the ocean and then swim toward it. And so uh, that's certainly what we try. But, but I'm saying, asking you uh, uh, a, a question about what it says, because this is a book about our failings as, this is a book about where we fail as human fucking beings. It is a book about our inability to protect ourselves our inability to protect each other. It is a book about us selling ourselves out for greed, power, a moment in the sun. It's a book about the ways in which we're, the, the ways we're broken and can't live out our dreams, make us try to squelch the dream. It's a book about, why well, I say, you know, I, I was, I was going to say to you, um, not since crime and misdemeanors have I come across something as well executed, as joyful to experience for the art of it that leaves me sadder about humanity. Uh, is that not what you come away with? No, that's, ex that's exactly it. But uh, Okay, so the truth, the actual truth is that it just had to do with what works. I love what you were saying. Just did I get it right? Characteristics stood in for character. Yeah. That's, that's been... Not that this is of at all interest to uh, to the people listening to us right now, but that was what David Reisman thought was happening to America from the 1950s. Not nothing to do with this book, but, um, but from 1950 on that we didn't have character as a people anymore. And what a beautiful thing to say, characteristic standing in for character. Um, so for me, it was just, I wanted, this is a great story and I want to tell the story, right? I also thought I'm not the most, once or twice I've gotten really 
maybe four or five times I've gotten really upset about a political issue and I've devoted a lot of time to it. And I, this is one of those times. Uh, and so I wanted to do a book. I thought that no one, I thought that knowing how this had happened would make our national life better. But every time people, every time I tried to recommend the books that I liked about this topic to people, they would get bored. They would like the first chapter or two and then they would lose energy. Yes. Right? And so I thought, okay, what I can bring to it is I can write this as fun reading a lot of Stephen King while I was doing it too, but I could write this as fun as King or as fun as Laurie Moore or as fun as Wallace, right? There would be the inevitable pages that you would like more than other pages, but I would try to make this book a thrilling read so then when you put the book down, every time you saw a newscast about this or read an editorial or had someone try to lie to you, you'd remember, oh no, this is, they tried this, you know, this is like the, you know, you know how those there are all those chess openings, like the Queen's Gambit. It's like they're using the Queen's Gambit again. This is bullshit, right? So when I wrote it with my full moral response, so he, so here's the prepared answer that I wouldn't have given anyway, which is, I came to think that this is among the more ultimate Gen X books because it's just saying what's going on and it's not making a judgment. But the reality is the reason that it's written that way is that it was very difficult for me when I wrote it with my full moral response. It didn't work. You couldn't read it because it was me getting angry and being very judgmental after paragraphs. This is, I'm coming to the end of this answer. Uh, and there was a moment, and this has to do with why I teach in, a, in the NYU program. So this is the origin story of me as a professor. Um, I had to, so I knew it wouldn't work if I was being judgmental, right? I mean, I'll, 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 I'll speculate with you as someone who's read the book uh, along with having written the book. Um, but I had to write about the Reagan administration and uh, and I knew that when I wrote about the Reagan administration as me, uh, it didn't work and it was unreadable. And so I had to just write, I'm almost done, I had to write five to seven pages about Reagan without judging. Because Reagan, a lot of people died of AIDS because he wouldn't say the word AIDS out loud. And he also, uh, he converted... He converted our politics from a results-oriented politics to a campaign-oriented politics, and we have never recovered from that. And then he also destroyed the economy. He made it, he took us from being a fundamentally middle-class nation to a nation where either you aspire to being lower echelon rich, that's all you can aspire to be, or, you're, or you have a sense of watching your chips diminish and you're waiting for them to be wiped off the board, right? Simple thing, an easier way to say that is that when he came in, the highest marginal tax rate for every dollar you earned above a million was like 70%, and when he left, it was 35 or 30%. When, that's a huge change, right? Anyway, I couldn't, when I wrote the chapter about him, short chapter, with me responding morally, it was unreadable. And so I had to learn how to write it without that, and I couldn't. I ended up, has this ever happened to you? I couldn't write it at my desk, so then I just tried writing it on the sofa. Yeah, 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 and then that was painful. And then I ended up having to write it in bed, just lying down. Um, Edith Wharton wrote in bed, so I was in good company. I didn't have Edith Wharton as company, right? But I was in the company of her as yes, a... Yes, going somewhere okay. else to write is something I've uh, done many yeah, times. Okay. So, I was so upset that uh, when my friend Darren Strauss said, hey, do you want to teach for the semester at NYU? It's like, yes, anything but this. So that's how I became a professor was because trying to learn how to write the moments where I was very judgmental without judging was extremely difficult. And then I got used to it because the book required it. I, I guess David, is that the answer? David, well, I guess this is the question. Come on. This is I'm, really I'm, letting the, I'm, let, I'm letting this you really and the This is really bothering me. This is yeah. really bothering me. Not no. This is what's really bothering me is like um, I understand everything I've written about. I understand 
Con like, artists. You, you can't be, yeah, exactly. I understand con artists. I understand exigencies. Yeah. I understand... Um, yeah, your career maker is about I, guys who are ripping off someone who's I, just I running a casino. That. I understand every yeah. part of it, right? I mean, I, I'm, you know, Dave and I wrote, made up Worm and... I understand all of it, yeah. right? But... And you can say you write... I, I agree. The book doesn't have the, the, the sort of uh, Martin Fink moral outrage that turns one off from reading. As I said, the book is incredibly inviting. It's amazing. It's an incredible read. But one is morally outraged on almost every page reading it. And where I, what I find myself... So like when Amy would say the thing to me about How can these they do people, this? Yeah. I always say, well, it's... Uh, look, they're uh, thinking about uh, getting reelected. They're thinking about power. They're thinking about their constituency. But this book... So my dear friend Seth Godin wrote this amazing book, or, or he wouldn't say he wrote it because he, he had a collection of people do it, but he, he spearheaded this book, The Carbon Almanac. And, but it, it's all about solutions, basically, really laying this thing out and trying to find solutions. And Seth's incredible at saying it's not your water bottle. He's, hmm. You know, it's about incentives. How do you incentivize yeah. people? He fully understands it's a really only a financial question. How do you exactly. make it more financially rewarding yeah. to do the right thing than the wrong thing? But, but um, Seth's a great thinker about this and really, really cares about it. But you chose, and by starting the book you, the way you did, and I will say this to people listening, the first 100 pages of this book are about everything that's great, about ambition and the scope of a dream and about wanting success and about being brilliant uh, and about wanting things for you that end up being great for others. And it's awesome that you started the book that way because you are platforming what was and had to be the American dream. Even though these weren't only Americans, uh, you're platforming that to let us know that you're sympathetic to, uh, as the, the author is sympathetic to this idea of kind of what's hardwired into us and what the myth of America is. And it's really important because it, it allows us to take the ride and to know that you're not a scold and that you don't want to, uh, uh, you wish you didn't have to tell us that that isn't the path exactly. Anymore. So you, you have relatives who are going to be in the program where I teach. And when we were talking before we got on the air, I was thinking, I'm going to be able to teach uh, some cool stuff to Koppelman's relative. But you, what you just said was so surprising to hear someone say out loud. So it's like you, your, your friend is not going to take my class. Like that, that's exactly why it's designed that way. It was, the book wouldn't work without that. And you had, the reader had to know that I... Why is it surprising? Wait, why'd that surprise it you? It shouldn't surprise me, but that no one else, no one has noticed that, including a lot of... I mean, people, people love the first section of the book, so I... But I guarantee I knew, Jonathan noticed that. Yeah. I guarantee you, John. Interesting. Like, um, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure I'm saying, yeah. you're, you know what I mean? He, yeah, no, no one, yeah, no, no, no one. Um, no one noticed yeah. it, I assure you. Um, no, one, no one noticed. Uh, that's but it. yes, that, that, that's, the, the, that, that's, that, that's the book's bona fides, absolutely. And also and, just a thrilling thing to read. Yes, it's right? thrilling, but it's it a way of saying, I understand. Hold on, let me just say to the reader. This is the story of how Edison creates electricity, basically, and how Tesla changes the way electricity is going to be used. Edison creates a use for, Edison finds the killer app for electricity and designs the idea of you generate electricity here and wires feed it here. And so the first hundred pages or so are about, here's how this happened. Because those yeah. tools and techniques and tactics and strategies and objectives worked That's right. in the world 
that existed then. But like, if we're talking about Stephen King, The Gunslinger is about a world that's moved on. And that's why The Gunslinger's, the whole point of those Gunslinger books is he's, it's a world that's moved on. And one of the things I took is that those, we can't be in the business of just rewarding all that now without understanding the unintended consequences. That's right. Right? Um, and so the question is, First hundred pages, yeah. The uh, question is this. I, I uh, just wanted uh, to start you again because I didn't. I got in the way of something cool you were going to do, which I, just, I had no idea where you were going, but you could tell it was going to be cool. It's like I got in the way of... What was it? You were saying that like the first hundred pages are... They're incredibly fun, and they're about what America can be, and they are totally positive about... Yes. yes. Well, I was because it yeah. shows the book's not a school yeah, of all exactly, this stuff, right? Yes. But... Well, no, I was saying that to the reader because yeah. the reader should not... Like, people yeah. listening to this should know... No, exactly. But the book, this is the yeah. ride. It's an incredible ride. But also, man, we have to talk about evil in a more direct way. And because people hear what I and I, I called Seth today and I, I was like, dude, you got to read this book because even though I know you, you know, you wrote this incredible thing and you've done so much and you took pains not in his, you know, there's a reason that you really spent time in this book talking about evil. People doing evil. We don't have to ascribe to the people pure evil. But maybe we can understand, as you say, in certain of their motivations from some of them, right? But, because, okay, I could say the most generous reading I could give is just societally, we're not hardwired as a society to pass the marshmallow test. <laughs> right? And because, and we're not. And, and that is part of the communication problem of this issue. Uh but, wait, wait, but it's I, beyond that. Go but, ahead, speak. Uh, Brian, what is the marshmallow test for people who might not know? The marshmallow test is a developmental test. And it is uh, given to kids. And the idea is you, uh, a kid is in a room and, and, and they, he, she, they are told um, if, if you wait, uh, you can get two marshmallows. Uh, and if you otherwise, you can only eat the one yeah. marshmallow. And it was for a long time seen as a sign if you could wait that that you had a, a possibly better outcomes for yourself because understanding delayed deferred gratification is important and the shocking thing among many shocking things in the book one of the shocking facts is that some dude figured out in 1908 that carbon was going to be a problem and then some other dude in 1956 said in 50 years you're going to see exactly the results and it turned out to be 56 years and so <laughs> like uh those things are shocking because you don't know people don't know but the thing that i guess is not shocking but is monstrous sometimes one watches during the covid one could watch the pageant and one could ask oneself well what do these people really know what are they allowing themselves not to hear or not to read? But when one reads this book, one comes away knowing, no, they fucking know and they just decide to lie. So I have to ask you as the person learning this, what did that feel like and what does it feel like? And what has it, when you walk into a room full of people, even as a professor or a room full of people as a writer, how has it affected the way you look at the people, man, uh, in the world? Because it's um, not a novel, it's fact. Yeah, uh, I wish I'd written down all the responses that I had to that. But I realized why I kept describing 
Uh, why I keep describing in interviews, why I keep describing this book as being like The Godfather, and I keep thinking it's because it's a saga, right? You get to watch a family. It turns out there's a family in this country, but you get to watch this family over decades. But I realize that the other reason is that um, Coppola is describing criminal activity and he's not judging it. And if you were pointing out this is wrong for them to be doing, it can't work. So I keep going back to what happens, you know, what it was like for me writing it. If I was judging them, the book couldn't exist. So the, the listener may have noticed, and I remember one of the editors on the book asked me, why did I keep referring to Arthur Robinson, who is objectively not a good person? I mean, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be insulting a human being, but objectively not good in a number of ways. But I keep referring to him as Arthur, right? Um, because I was writing this person's story and they were a person. And if I was judging them, there, there wouldn't be a story, right? I, and also, here's, here's another way of looking at it, it's just a results thing, right? Obviously, I care a huge amount about this issue. And to me, it is a grotesque, big Coen Brothers comedy. But I didn't have to say anything moral because you had all the responses I would have prayed for and I didn't have to make a single moral But what judgment. are you saying, but, but David, what are you saying? I don't know. I'll say this. I and I can tell you what they think, but sorry. What? No. What? What are you saying about human nature? Uh, what are you saying about human nature uh, here? What, what am I saying about human nature? Well, like lemmings aren't really lemmings, right? But we seem to be, and so Harvey Lemmings, I believe, is Tracy Jordan's lawyer on the but 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 problem. lemmings. Yeah. Uh, I was reading, Amy and I were reading John Green's, we love to listen to books in the, in the, in the, in the car together, and we were listening to, uh, the, and how do you say that, Anthropocene Reviewed book, yeah. uh, which is wonderful, by the way. And um, I didn't realize that the Lemmings thing was another one of those. Yeah, uh, not true things. Yeah. And set up to not be true. Yeah. Like the yeah. things you, yeah. you know, they were Probably pushing the, they, yeah. they pushed the lemmings over the thing. <laughs> in the doc, do you know that they pushed the not lemmings? But not surprised. It's, a, there, it's been revealed. They pushed the lemmings. How funny. Yeah. So, but we seem to be like lemmings. Yeah, that's right. Um, tri but maybe more, more tribal. But this, did, okay, here's a better way to say it. As a writer, as a human, did writing this book shift your opinion on yes, it did. Human nature. Yeah, it did. How? I just don't want to say it. Say it. Okay. I I thought that like uh uh so um obviously I do a lot of reading and uh I think um this is embarrassing but uh but Melville I think he wrote that um that Hawthorne said no in Thunder and then uh Heming uh, Melville himself was talking about where he came in on that big whale book that he wrote, um, which was negative, basically. Anyway, like the fact that we knew what was going to happen from 56 on, yes. and we didn't do anything, what I began to think is this is a story about a society that is too stupid to live. So yes. that was the thing I didn't want to say. Yes. Like, but that is, so now you've got, you've got me into saying the thing that I had promised myself I wouldn't say it's during the It's all over the book. Process. We're too fucking stupid to live. Yeah, but I wasn't going to say it. Because like, but yes, the culture, but here's the thing. It's not, it's not the fault of anybody who's reading the book or anybody who voted intelligently or even people who voted unintelligently but voted passionately. Um, the people who made the decisions for us they were just, and that's why it was a very fun thing to write about. I can't believe I got tricked into saying the thing that I wasn't going to say. Um, but uh, 
No, it's important to say it, man, because we can still, because we are smart enough to change. Yeah, but um, but the people who made the decisions, it's just like um, anything that's like putting off writing your, it's like putting off filing your taxes. Like every day you decide, it's not that you decide yeah. a year in advance not to, but every day you decide not to. Or this happens with some of the students I have the great good fortune to work with. It's not that they don't write the novel that they would write that would be great. And for everybody here who knows that if they sat down and wrote a first draft or a second draft, their story, their novella, their novel would come out great. It's not that they decide not to write it. It's that every day they decide not to write it. And every day over a 70-year period, until Joe Biden, by the way, he, he got them to vote for the Inflation Reduction Act. That's the first real bill that we've passed on this. Uh, so it took us 70 years. But every day we decided not to do it. It was like, it's like if someone, I mean, the funny thing about smoking is it is almost exactly like the decisions people make with smoking, which is I will quit smoking tomorrow. The, the fact that the, all, the, all the approaches to, um, to fighting the science of global warming, do you feel the energy that's left my voice now that I was tricked by the interrogation into confessing? But in any event, um, uh, that is a, that's, that's a law and order metaphor, Brian. It's, 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 uh, NYPD blue for me is the best, that. but, um, <laughs> but anyway, we were tricked. It's important. Like, because, but we didn't every day we did every day we decided over a 70 year period not to do anything about this. And here it is right here. We're in a situation where New York city had no snowfall for a whole year, which is just the kind of thing they warned about. And it's like, this is part of what I hold against Reagan politics. The marketing of politics became so sophisticated as of 1980 and 1981. This is the part that's boring. It's not in the book, by the way. I kept this stuff out of the book because it's a great story that we all lived and we're still living. And this is fascinating to talk about, but it's just not something that you have in a story. Um, but it got so it got so sophisticated that we could bring up issues that had to be solved. And we could debate potential solutions in a way that would motivate people to come and vote or come and talk about why my party is better than your party my candidate for city council person or for governor is better than your than your candidate and it might be better if we didn't solve it i just realized that the book i should compare this to is the power book Oh, no, and, no, no, no. The uh, book you should compare it to is Catch-22. Well, yeah, I said I, yeah. No, Joseph Heller, yeah. Vonnegut, but also yeah. The Power Broker. Power Broker, yeah. No, also The Power Broker because um, all this stuff happened in plain sight and people didn't understand that there were forces, right, moving this stuff around. Uh, yeah, but, uh, okay. No, but like, you're, go ahead. But if you, if, you read, um, if you read Joseph Heller... Uh, and then you write an email to a friend of yours, it'll be in Joseph Heller's Yeah, voice. yeah, this is so, much funnier. I mean, this yeah, is funnier. Yeah, Kara yeah. was not interested in being funny at yeah, that time, yeah. obviously, yeah. and this book is interested in being funny. I, Vonnegut is what yeah, um, I would uh, occurred to me. Also, yeah. I'll say, oddly, I only read Catch-22 one time. That's a great book. I know, but I only yeah. read it once. I couldn't, I don't want to be in that. I'm not, the, your thing is, um, the way you write has always been incredibly inviting. And Catch-22 is so nervous that it, I, I don't, the, now I read it 30 years ago, yeah. 40 years ago. Yeah. I remember it completely, but it's not a book that's, it's not one of my favorite Do books. Do you want to hear a great thing that Mailer said? I want to know, yes, go ahead. 
Uh, so you heard Mailer and you're like, you, you thought he's interrupting, but this could be cool. He said a great thing about it. I argued and, all and weekend with somebody about Mailer, so I <laughs> want to hear this. Super yes. smart. He wrote a great essay about uh, 10 books, including Salinger, by the way. It's called uh, Ernest Hem It's called Norman Mailer. If, I think he wanted me to confuse him with him. We wanted all of us to confuse I mean, him with Hemingway. Yeah. By the way, as a side note for people who like Hemingway and maybe have mixed feelings about Mailer. I've always loved Mailer for writing this note to Hemingway because he was really influenced. This isn't what I wanted to say. I wanted to say something about Hitler, but this is just, if we're there, we may as well Do say it. it. Um, he wanted to be a writer because of Hemingway and wonderful, like, well, what a wonderful, ambitious American thing. A first generation Jew growing up in Brooklyn thinks that he can be like the most, one of the great things about America, right? And he kept sending his stuff to Mailer, or he kept sending his stuff to Hemingway, and Hemingway wouldn't answer. And so he, I think he sent him An American Dream, and the letter, that's like his third or fourth novel, and the letter was, this is the last book I'm going to send you, I've wanted you to respond, and if you don't, you know, I think you're the best writer, and if you don't, fuck you, right? And I'll never send you another. And Hemingway didn't respond. It couldn't have been an American dream because he would have been dead by then. But it was the book, right? Maybe it was the Deer Park. But I love, I love Mailer both for sending that to Hemingway and also saying there's an end to how many times I'll send you stuff. Anyway, Mailer around the same time wrote this essay for Esquire called Norman Mailer versus Eight American Writers. And one of the writers he's talking about is, is Heller. The other one he's writing about is Salinger, and he writes about Bellow, all the people who were big then, and also Updike. It's really worth finding and not hard to find online. Like Hemingway was only interested in uh, fucking over dead writers, and, and uh, <laughs> Mailer, of course, yeah. was competing yeah. against yeah. Um, right. living writers. If you're but, listening but, but, to this, uh, Why Are We in Vietnam to me is the great Mailer novel, and it's slight, and you could read it in a weekend, yeah. and it's really worth reading. Uh, it's, his only, it's his most subtle novel, I think. Um, well, uh, my friend Strauss said that too. Really? Um, Have you read that one? No, I stopped at a. I didn't. I didn't want to disagree with a close friend, basically. Um, and I had read. Um, I had read the one where he and Robert Lowell are both protesting, and he's very envious that Lowell is getting. I know, don't. There's a lot of his. There's two things in the mailers that I love. Yeah. You know, the, the quote. I think I might have said this last time. I'm not sure. It's my favorite quote. Um, of, and because I think it's the true, one of the most true things, which is that a, a novelist. Um, who's an imaginative novelist can write about anything and anybody. The one thing they can't write about is a greater novelist. That's really funny. Uh, yeah, you would have said that. And I think it's yeah. true and incredible. But I want to read. I, I want to. By the way, w wouldn't I have proved that wasn't true by writing that nice book about Wallace? Th th doesn't that prove that that's incorrect? No. Okay, um, but let, let, let me finish the thing that he said. No, about. because it's not a, you didn't write a novel. No, but I was writing. But I was writing about. Okay, in any event. Um, no, no, you were. He's saying imagining the interiority. Ah, got it. You okay. weren't imagining yeah, Wallace's okay, interiority. Right okay. Though no, by picking it, I will say I think I think about one quote that we would not know. We would not know this. I think about it. I would say I think about it almost every day, which is the breakfast quote larval part of the day <laughs> i think about it almost every day and uh, it is really not funny. something that uh, is so good had you not picked that yeah. out though we would never yeah. know that that was one of his thoughts he never yeah. wrote that no um that's that's the beauty of writing right it's just like you I heard think of it, that yeah. and you carried it yeah. for years and then you deployed it yeah but that's a that's what writing can be it's like neural graffiti it's like someone saw something and then they graffiti it into your brain, and then you'll always see it that way. That's, there's no other form that can do that. This is what's so great about reading and writing and why, you know, you, I get older and, and like the cost of reading is so much greater. 
not when you're listening when you're driving. Emotion, right? but the cost yeah. emotionally of reading is so much greater. I find fiction. Because really, I was not kidding about like fiction can take me out for if I, if I uh, you know, I find sometimes that reading fiction, Mark Halpern said it to me 20 years ago. I didn't understand it. Um, Let me just that, say that when Brian's talking about Mark Halpern, he does not mean the political writer. No, no. I mean the novelist. You no, know, I know. But just the names are pronounced the same. Thank so you for that. That was, that was just, for, yeah, yes, that was a that's courtesy. correct. Yes. Uh, appreciate it. No, I'm talking about the person who wrote yeah. Soldier of the Great War, Refiner's Fire, um, Winter's um, Tale, Winter's Tale, those things. Um, Ellis, uh, Ellis Island, yeah, Thrill, thrilling, oh, man, yeah, that's thrilling. incredible. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, what but he no, said to you? Th- what thing, did he, say, what did he from, say to you? From your, he said, um, I was, I was trying to foist a bunch of novels on him. We were hiking together and uh, with Levine, and, and, and he, where he wrote Soldier, where Mark wrote Soldier of the Great War, and. And by we were hiking, I mean, I was trying to keep up with those two guys both in good shape. And Levine would have to grab my fucking oh, backpack good. and carry it up for me. It was disgraceful. But, uh, I mean, generous and beautiful of him, disgraceful of me to not be prepared. Uh, Mark, it's given a whole plan, you know, walk with a weighted vat, all this stuff. And I did very little of it. But no, he just said the cost as you get older, as you get to 50. He, he said, you know, the cost of reading is greater emotionally. And I couldn't understand it at 35 or 30 now i completely understand it it can tear me apart you know books can really tear me apart in a way that it's harder to recover now i'd be curious why because of death everything is about death and uh and losing everything that you love uh and um perhaps it's also having to do with having children but the whole thing becomes uh what's an example of um of something that tore you up where after you read it because like you were saying that you read salinger every year it doesn't have that effect on you Uh, you, okay so what i don't i haven't in a while except um uh except seymour first 30 pages of seymour i would say uh well it's why for instance i'm going to answer this when we're not on the mic because i'm going to say something that would will read as kind of damning to an author i like you will understand. I'll say this. There's a, a level of novel that is a literary novel that doesn't quite, that has, a, a, that you can glide through, that I can just kind of like deal with and love and I can escape, but still feel like I'm reading something that causes me to think and feel. Like, like, like but if says, I engage yeah. in, mo- but, but you know, if I, oh, I'll tell you. Like I'm reading right now, I'm reading, I've read two of the three Bolaño novellas in that little book. And I have, I, it is, you have to put that fucking thing down and take a walk. <laughs> like, you know, the one, the one where he's um, the kid who's talking to the guy on the bench and about the movies and he sees the, the, he sees that movie star. He's going to these movies. I mean, uh, and, and, uh, or like Savage Detectives, Let's say like on. those books. Are, no, so you read those books, and they're they're. Um, I have to just be prepared for the fact that it's really going to be deeply. It cracks something in you, man, and you want that, but it you gotta like uh, be ready for it. I think as you get older, I feel that way. I used to when I was young, I would just find all that only inspiring, only exciting, it, more intellectual and less. Uh, where it, the the sadness seemed like a sadness that I would have to deal with someday. Whereas now it's a sadness that I have to deal with all the fucking so time. So funny. I feel that way with people, but don't feel that way with books. 
Really? Yeah, I feel Why? that. Why? Well, because with books, books last. So uh, the thing about people is that they're not going to be there or you're going to disappoint them in some way. But the way. books are all about that. I know, That's... But, um, but the... But the books give you a way to ex- the, the books give you a way to experience that fire, and you're wearing uh, a fire retardant hazmat suit of something. But I will remind me when we're done. I will explain the book. Yeah. That's the perfect example of the kind of thing now that I can read and love. And well, I'll say, oh, I'll say this: like Halpern wrote a book called Paris, Paris in the title, and I've read the first hundred pages five times, and I can't. It is magnificent, glorious, perfect thing. And I have not been able to power through because I know how rough the sledding is going to be <laughs> emotionally. And I will. That's the next book I'm going to read. But I want to read one thing okay, about this. Wait, then we're do... going to be done. I have to read this from your book. Okay. But let me, let me because the, the listener who's been going through this conversation with us has been waiting for me to say the Heller thing. It's just it's a funny line that will stay in their head. Um, Hemingway said it's a great book. Or Hemingway. Mailer said it's a great book. But you could take 200 pages out of the middle and not even the author would know they were missing. God damn, that's funny. Isn't it great? Yeah. So I just. He so, was such yeah. a prick. <laughs> I mean, he says that and then has the audacity to write Harlot's yeah, Ghost. Exactly. I mean, I mean, you want to take 200 pages out of Harlot's Ghost, take 400. Yeah, I, I, believe that, um, I believe that sometimes our planet seems to work on the Twilight Zone principles. That whatever it is that you say, that becomes the third act of your life. Well, yeah, yeah. totally. And why are we in Vietnam? The reason I, your friend told you that book yeah. is so great. Darren. It's a small book. You will, who said it? Oh, Darren? Darren, Darren yeah. Oh, so now Darren and I yeah. both said it. You, yeah. You're going to yeah. have to read yeah. it, right? Yeah. You got to read the yeah. book. Okay. Go ahead. So I, so I discharge my debt to a great line. So great line's been said. So there's this theory about global warming. And I say I sometimes... I would say I do think coming away from this book that the only thing that's going to work is when the situation is uh, when when enough smart, ambitious business people realize that there's money in it for them to solve it because nothing else will work or has worked. And so, in fact, there's nothing any of us can really do except maybe some kid will read this who's 17 and be like and, and she'll be like, oh. I have to now go, if I solve this, I'll become a billionaire. That's right. And, and uh, maybe, and I'll be the next one of those people because that's the problem. Because there's this idea that um, we will, as a society, be resourceful enough to solve it. And one of the darkest mini Donner Party moments, uh, and I had never heard this, and I was so, this was delightful to me <laughs> and funny, and I know you know what I'm going to read. And it's about a time that was, you know, the book keeps telling you that with a lot of facts, you know, this, this period of time was the hottest in, in history and why that's really bad. Hmm. Um, and then there's this moment, we're talking about the late 80s. That spring, England's lead climate researcher spoke with the New York Times. If the next decade was as warm or warmer, it would be very hard to deny the greenhouse effect. The scientist added, it's very hard to deny. Now, years later, an ice core researcher <laughs> named Richard Alley would chair a much darker National Academy panel. Okay, I, I would I have to do the setup, and you would know if we had if we had broken the story, and then someone had gone had gone away, and they'd written it, and they'd come back in ten days with um, with the scenes, right? And you're reading in the fourth act, you'd be like, okay, you have this, you have the punchline works. We've got to the setup. The setup is, and so you would say, so you and David would then write the setup scene in, and they would still get the credit because you guys are great producers. Um, the setup is that uh, 
there's been a under Reagan. This is the thing that was so hard for me to write about because it's where we go wrong. Um, there was a person who headed a there's a National Academy of Sciences study that said this is going to be really bad. We have to deal with this. But the Reagan people were able to get someone who believed in their political philosophy to chair the report, which meant that he wrote the executive summary, he wrote the chapter summaries, and he also wrote the press releases. And so they're all saying the climate's going to change. It's going to be awful. We are we we are um, we are uncomfortable uh, inducing changes of this magnitude. And then he wrote, yes, but there are changes. A change in climate might not be that big a deal. People change climate all the time. It may be no different than people moving from uh, from Ohio to Florida. And it's amazing how resourceful people can be. Yeah, people are resilient writes. and resourceful. Yeah, exactly. Right? So that's the setup. And so then, and, and then we uh, have those quotes. And then the chapter ends. So and that and that that study I think is from '83. And then Richard Alley's study, I believe, is from the middle '90s. Oh, and throughout this, and uh, um, throughout this it, book, abrupt climate not, not to go back to, there's this incredible character. Why novels are important is there's this incredible character in *Soldier of the Great War* named Orfeo Quato, and Orfeo Quato is a little man with a pen, a big pen, and he's constantly changing orders, um, <laughs> making orders more potent or less potent. And this book has this run about a few of these kinds of people, uh, people in positions of power or attendant to positions of power. We have this incredible line about the they go in at night and then by uh, the, the morning. The, the, the total successors who take care of the necessary and are gone by morning. Yeah. Those are the successors of uh, uh, Tazi, and, and, but that's in, um, and, yeah. Incredible line, but, yeah. but 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 here, this is a story uh, that you should just have in, in, in your head. Yeah, okay, so. Um, so oh, I'm gonna read it. Yeah, exactly. Your book. So, so, the, yeah, so the setup is, it's amazing how resourceful people can be and climate change Maybe no more different than moving from Ohio to Florida. Yeah, because they say um, you can. The line is over can, at the Wall Street Journal. Readers receive the all clear. A panel of top scientists has some advice for people worried about the much publicized warming of the Earth's 1983. climate. 1983. You can cope. <laughs> and when that happened, the issue went away for years. Then it kept getting warmer. And then this Dr. Alley wrote about. Uh, an example of humans. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just the when humans try, this is the point, when humans try to try their best to be adaptable against giant forces of nature. Yeah. Yeah. He's writing about Greenland, what happened to people and livestock during a period of rapid climate change, a sudden cooling. The settlers brought farm animals into their homes during, into their houses during the cold winters, Dr. Ellie explains. Eventually, the settlers ate their farm animals, then their dogs, then disappeared <laughs> themselves. And this book is really trying to prevent us from eating our dogs and also from <laughs> disappearing ourselves. There are many more lines I could quote, but we've been at this for two hours. Um, David Lipsky, I wanna circle back, shoot me for saying circle back, but I wanna go back to the beginning <laughs> of like. our conversation and I'm incredibly touched and moved by the fact that the conversation we had all those years ago was stayed with you hmm. enough that you wanted the book to be a little bit of a fuck you uh, <laughs> to me and I have to say that um, I feel great about it and I feel that young man you have delivered on your promise this is uh, an extraordinary work I put it up on threads because I'm not on Twitter anymore and I'm gonna 
send this book. Okay, here, let's do this. Uh, the first 10 people to email me at the moment, bk at gmail.com. Um, I'll buy books, David will sign them and we'll send 10 books to you. Uh, one to each of you. If the first 10 people, each of you will get a signed book. Like, uh, I'll buy the books, I'll get them here. You can come by and quickly sign them, we'll send them out. Because I think this book is so important. I want so many people to read it, but not just because it's so important, because it's so damned entertaining, because this book is written with love, with love for the reader, with love for humanity, with um, a huge understanding gaze, a huge nod to the fact that we are in this together, even though we all forget it all the fucking time. It's hard work to read a novel, to buy a novel, to go get a novel. It's hard work to get a nonfiction book that is creative nonfiction. Uh, it's hard to sit down and calmly take the time, but I promise you this book is worth it. David Lipsky's a brilliant person, but there are a lot of brilliant people. The thing is that he delivered on the promise of his brilliance in this book. And uh, I was really, I, I rescheduled this a number of times because I was reading it so slowly with a pen. I was folding over every page. I was talking about it at home and I just wanted to, I didn't want to race through it. I wanted to take my time and really, really eat the book. The last thing I'll say about Amy is that when Amy met Per Patterson, she told him and it was true that she tried to eat a page of his book because she wanted to, somehow the book mattered so much to her, she wanted to try. And you know, we, she stopped, but she really did try to eat a page of his book. And he looked at her for a sec like she was nuts and then allowed that he understood. And uh, I'm far too old to eat the book because you know, uh, even eating a slice of pizza gives me indigestion. <laughs> but science fiction. Uh, it is, it's worth uh, consuming. So thanks, man. Thanks for reading it. And thanks for writing it. Thanks for putting know, it out there for us to read. I read it more than anybody will ever read that book. So thanks for reading it as right. Yes, I really appreciate it. Where are, are you online anywhere? No, no, no. Just, uh, just only in person. All right. Well, you can try to. <laughs> but here's what actually what's online is the um, uh, the notes to the book are online, and they're actually really funny. But um, but I don't want to. And get they're at the parrot and the igloo dot com. Dot yeah, com. But, um, but I have nothing to. I'm curious what the book was that she wanted to eat, and then I'm honor bound because I'm a big Thomas Harris fan to point out that that's what Dollaride was doing with uh, the Red Dragon, the Blake Red Dragon illustration. So you should show that scene. Every every version of that scene is good. It's good in the uh, Michael Mann. Brilliant you want to watch it in the Michael Mann, or yeah. you want to read it in the book? Yeah, I love the, book, the yeah. I love the book. Is Amos um, love those incredible. Books too. Yeah. It's not. I think it's but, not out, out stealing. I think it's the one after Stealing Horses. I think it's yeah. the Per Patterson book yeah. after. Have you read Stealing Horses? Mm -mm. Oh, read Stealing yeah. Horses. I mean, that's that's the one to read. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. You can find me on Instagram or on Threads if you want. You can email me themomentbk at gmail.com, and we will see you next time.